you have your Bibles, you can take them with me this morning and turn to Genesis 16 once again. This is kind of a part two of the message we considered last week. Uh, last week was the consequences of a pragmatic faith. This week, we think through the other side of the narrative, the consequences of yielded headship. Last time we were together, we considered this idea, a pragmatic faith which seeks to go about bringing about what we perceive to be God's will in a way that makes sense to us, but which is outside of God's design, God's leading, God's intent, God's will. A faith that when at once we pinpoint God's promises, we then run to our own solutions, human solutions, worldly solutions to bring about those things rather than waiting on the Lord or um, considering uh, his path as opposed to ours. So we considered that idea from Lamentations. It is good for a man that he both wait and patiently hope for the salvation of the Lord. And we consider this because of what we read in Genesis 16. We presume that Sarai was very discouraged at this point in the text. As I told you last week, I made some inferences here as it relates to her condition as a means by which to attempt to explain what it was that she chose to do. I believe that she, knowing that, at least from her perspective, the perspective of her uh, feelings, she was the cause of her husband not having what God had promised. She took what we considered at the time to be a, a pseudo-noble path, right? A noble path in theory, yielding her husband to her handmaid Hagar, thinking that this sacrifice of her husband for the sake of God's promise was what she ought to do. But it obviously was not what she should do. God does not need our pragmatic solutions to bring about his purposes in our lives. There is nothing wrong with doing things to align ourselves with God's promises, with God's commands. Um, the, the, uh, the idea that when God tells us something, when he instructs us, when he gives us promises, that does not mean, excuse me, that we can just sit on the couch and eat potato chips, and that is not what uh, hoping and uh, patiently waiting and hoping for the, the salvation of the Lord is, uh, sitting around eating potato chips and, and just having God do everything for us. That's not the idea. However, the idea of, well, God has made a promise and I have to do something. Well, that's, not, that's not a good idea either. We are in a, a culture, a do-something culture, right? Every tragedy comes about. And the politicians say, I have to look like I've done something. We have to do something. And because we always have to do something, because when a bad thing happens, we have to do something. Because when, when people are sad, we have to do something. We find ourselves doing a lot of bad things, wrong things, mis misdirected things, because we feel like we have to do something. Well, perhaps Sarah felt like she had to do something. God had made these promises and she's standing in the way, she thinks. But then as we were studying this topic, we came across another idea as well. The text describes the day that Sarai came to Abram. And he requested of him that he take Hagar, Sarai's handmaid, to wife. And that through Hagar, Sarai might bear this son, who then could solve Abram's problem of not having an heir and also give Sarai the son to raise. 
We pick up then, we'll read the passage together. We'll just read verses two through five. The Bible says this. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid, that I may, that it may be, excuse me, that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, that would be Sarai, uh, when, when she saw, yes, that she con- had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived... I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. So Sarai, a little bit of a review, right? And what we might imagine to be a state of frustration, maybe blaming herself for her husband not having the promises that were supposed to be his. Perhaps, and again, this is me editorializing here. We don't know exactly what she was feeling. We, we might be able to, to make some reasonable assumptions, which is what we're doing this morning, but we are making inferences. Perhaps she feels inadequate, Perhaps feeling like all of her husband's problems are her fault. Perhaps feeling like her husband must have made a huge mistake in marrying her because he's supposed to have this kid or these children to become a mighty nation. She can't be for him what God wants for him. And so she's standing in the way of his future. She's standing in the way of his ministry. She's standing in the way of his promises. She's standing in the way of God's will for him. And of course, this is absolutely untrue. And how do we know that's untrue? Well, we know that's untrue because when God initiated the promises to Abraham, he was already married. God did not initiate the promises. If, if Abram had been unmarried and, and God had come up to Abram and said, I want to make of you a great nation and formulate a great people, and then he had chosen a known barren woman to be his wife, we might have a case to say that she's standing in his way. But none of that is true here. Every promise that God gave to Abraham was after he was already married to Sarai. God gave these promises to Abram while married to her. God's plans most certainly already included her. No question about it. But we might still imagine that maybe that's how she felt. So as we talked about last time, it seems that Sarai exercised a sort of pragmatic faith, which compels her to think that if she's just set herself aside more in order to allow her husband to succeed, that that would solve the problem. And wives know this. The secret to a good and godly husband's success is never for you to get out of the way. Now, we can think about the ideas of a husband who's not doing right, and we can think about all of the different scenarios of, of broken marriages and such, and I, but, but, but t- take what I said at, 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 as I said it. The secret to a good and godly husband's success is never for you to get out of the way. You and your husband are one flesh. The key is not to get out of the way. The key is for you two to be on the same page. To be aligned. For you to bring yourself into alignment with his vision, as the scriptures say, this is what submission is, as he is a good and godly husband loving his wife. Submission, reverence. What are these? The wife, see that she reverence her husband. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. What does that mean? This is not a message on submission today. I've preached several of those. You can go back and listen to them online. But the idea of submission, wife... 
is when your success is defined by your husband's success. So that what you are working for as a wife is the success of your husband. Now, even if you're, you don't have a good and godly husband, this submission is still possible. Sometimes you may have to be working for your husband's success in spite of himself. If he has no spiritual vision for the home, well, maybe you have to raise your kids as if he did. And produce the godly children in spite of him if you can't do it because of him. And perhaps people will look at your husband and go up to your husband one day and say, wow, how did you raise such godly kids? And maybe he'll not even know how. Because he didn't. Or maybe it will be because he'll, he'll recognize and he'll say, it's because I have a godly wife. Either way, though, that's okay. Because you've made him successful. You've accomplished your purpose. You've aligned yourself with his vision. Because you have used the trust and authority that was given to you by your husband to make him successful. You've been a good wife. And you've pleased God. And you've obeyed the scriptures. That is the idea of submission. How do we know that that's the idea of submission? We know that's the idea of submission because that's exactly what the picture is between Christ and his church. When is the church submitted? What does submission look like as the bride of Christ? It looks like when we have made Christ successful. When we have represented Christ properly. When Christ's vision, will, direction, desire has worked itself out in his people. Because we are what's called the body of Christ who follows our head. And my body, if everything is working the way it's supposed to, does what it does because my head is telling it to do so. If my body starts doing things without my head's permission, now I've got problems. Now, in the physical, that means we have medical issues at hand. In the spiritual, it means we have a submission issue at hand. So Sarah, I forgot this for a moment. She decided that the best thing she could do for her husband was to get out of his way, to let him have a child, and she suggested her handmaid Hagar for this task. And this is a bad idea in every respect. It's outside of God's design, given all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that a man would leave his father and his mother and he would cleave unto his wife and they too would become one flesh. Nowhere in these institutions is there allowance, even theoretically, for the idea of multiple wives, any other union besides one man and one woman. This is God's design. This is God's intent. This is God's will. And as we'll see, it's also a bad idea in doing so, in that in doing so, Hagar is positioned, Sarai positions Hagar into an inverted place in society. Hagar is the handmaid of Sarai in a position of subjection and submission. But Hagar now has the singular thing that Sarai wants and can't have, which is a child with her husband, creating an emotional and societal inversion by which Hagar actually sees herself as the greater, the dominant, the successful, and starts to despise her mistress. And Abram, the Bible says, hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. He has a child with Hagar. And we can speculate as to why it might be that Abram chose to do this thing. Various explanations ranging, of course, from the spiritual to the carnal. Spiritually, it's possible that Sarai actually convinced Abram of this thing. 
that Abram actually thought it was a good solution to the problem of the seed that should come. It's not a solution which he ever would have proposed himself. We can be fairly confident that for several reasons. No husband who loves his wife is going to propose that he have a child with another woman. That doesn't make any sense. That's foolish, demeaning, unfaithful. Furthermore, no man who has true fellowship with God is going to be able to ignore the mandate of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, as it relates to the one flesh union between himself and his wife. However, in that Sarai is the one that brought it up, and that Sarai is the one that suggested it, which means only in the mind of a man who is not thinking clearly, at least it means, that his wife is okay with this arrangement. But only in the mind of a man who is not thinking clearly. Perhaps Abram actually convinced himself that this was in fact what God was planning all along, that his wife was actually going to be okay with this. That maybe this is actually the solution to the problem. He actually will have a child with Sarai's handmaid, and according to the customs of the day, it would be understood that Hagar would only be a surrogate for Sarai. Right? We talked about this last week. We saw this with Jacob and his two wives, and when they couldn't have wives, they gave their, their, their handmaids to Jacob to have children in their name, so this was culturally not necessarily out of bounds. Sarai actually becoming the mother, the child raised in Sarai's name, though it was Hagar's by blood. But here's the problem. We, we can see even precedent for this with the idea of the kinsman redeemer, right? Where in, in Jewish law, if a man died, then his near kinsman would take the man's wife and raise up a child in, in, in his kinsman's name. But the problem, of course, is that Sarai is not dead and Abram's not dead and no one's dead here. So it just, just doesn't work. So let's be honest. There isn't even a problem here. God spent a whole chapter of our Bibles, which we spent an inordinate amount of time on, <laughs> talking about God's promise to Abram. So the fact that Sarai, the fact that Sarai can't conceive is the least of the problems here. God is perfectly capable of fixing that problem. If he is going to go through all of the trouble of telling Abram these promises, of bringing him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and then of going through that, 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 that covenant ritual, it's not a problem for him to give Sarai a child. But Abram is human, and his wife had a viable solution to the problem. This is that pragmatic faith idea we talked about last week. And perhaps this is why he felt he should do this. This theory that Abram does truly see a spiritual solution to the problem in having a child with Hagar is supported, in fact, by an interaction that God would have with Abram a couple of chapters later. We're in Genesis 16. Well, I guess next chapter. In Genesis 17, as God is relating the deeper essence of his promise to Abram, whereby he promises Abram that Sarai would have a child, notice what God says in verses 15 through 17. And God said, and by this point he's changed, changed Abraham's name. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall, be her, shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face, notice this, and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is 90 years old, bear? 
And Abraham said unto God, notice this, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. So God changes Abram's name to Abraham. God changes Sarah's name to Sarah. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But as God changes these names, he then tells Abraham that he will, that he will have a son through his wife, Sarah. And the Bible says that Abram laughs at this in his heart. He says, how is that possible? I'm 100. My wife is 90. Is she really going to give birth at this point in her life? And then he proclaims, Oh, that Ishmael, that would be the child that Abraham is about to have with Hagar. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Abraham is actually petitioning God at the moment that God promised that he would have a child with his wife to instead simply allow Ishmael to be the heir. And this lends legitimacy to the idea that Abraham truly did believe that Ishmael could be that seed. That Abraham did in this moment believe that this could be a legitimate spiritual solution to the problem. This is possible that in the day that Sarai petitioned Abraham to take Hagar, he actually, though incorrectly, saw spiritual potential in this solution. It's also possible, however, that Abram knew immediately that this was a really, really bad idea. But the carnal part of his nature, the opportunity to be indulgent, was there and he took it. Not considering the fullest consequences of what it would mean. Possible as well. And we can speculate on these things, but I'd like to, as, uh, as the, the, the title of the sermon says, go in a bit of a different direction. The first area of focus of our time together being what we already mentioned, that, that Abram hearkened unto his wife, Sarai. And we talked already about the predictable results of this. Abram has a, uh, conceives, we, we, we have not seen the child uh, yet be born, but Abram conceives with Hagar. Hagar now has no respect for her mistress. This is the idea that Sarai was despised in her eyes. We use the word despised today in an emotional way. If we talk about something that we despise, it usually connects to the concept of emotional hatred. However, in our English Bible here, the idea is not to have emotional hatred towards, but rather to uh, reduce in value, to think little of, to lose respect for. That's the idea of despising. Hagar could no longer or did no longer treat her mistress with respect because she, to be quite honest, felt superior to her mistress. And in a sense, rightfully so, at least culturally, because she had a child where her mistress did not, and on top of that, she had a child with her mistress's husband. Makes sense. And Sarai realizes that this whole thing was a mistake. And this is where we come to that second part of the narrative that we highlighted last week and said we were going to consider this week. Verse 5. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. Sarai blames Abram here. She says that Sarai's wrong rests upon Abram's head, and she calls the Lord to judge between Sarai and Abram. Now, the modern sensibility would respond to this by dissension. What do you mean it's Abram's fault? It was Sarah's idea. Didn't she request this? Why is she now trying to deflect the blame onto Abram? And that's a very rational decision from a very Western American personal responsibility kind of a standpoint. For the husband to say, well, my wife isn't doing what I think she should do, but it's her decision. 
It's on her head. She'll make the decision and she'll live with the consequences. That's, that's very much so kind of modern American thinking. And it's very culturally consistent. But from a purely biblical standpoint, it is not consistent. From a purely biblical standpoint, Sarai is correct here. Her wrong does rest on Abram's shoulders. That does not mean she bears no blame. That does not mean that you cannot point to things that she did wrong. But in a marriage, as Christ is the head of the church, the Bible says, so is the man the head of the woman. The man has headship. Decisions are designed to pass through him. Now maybe... In various marriages, this looks differently. And again, I'm, I'm going to throw a few caveats in here. It's not the focus of our time together today. But this will look differently. In various marriages, men will delegate more or less decision-making to the wife. So that as you look at any given home, it may be that it looks as though the wife has plenary power over, over certain aspects of the home. Yes, but if it's a proper biblical marriage, that plenary power is still delegated power. The husband says, I trust you implicitly. I know that you can handle this. This is our arrangement. You make the decisions. You don't even have to consult me. That's, that's fine. That's wonderful. That's different, though, from, well, it's not what I want. But to be quite honest, what can I do? She's her own person. That's very different. One of them is headship. Delegated responsibility, absolute trust. That's all well and good. The other one is inversion of headship. That's not, okay. that, 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 that's not biblically sound, put it that way. It's not biblically sound. It's not God's design. So in that sense, Sarai is correct here. The doctrine of headship is not a doctrine, Christian, of male dominance. It's a doctrine of male responsibility and accountability. It is the foil to the doctrine of wife's submission, which is not a doctrine of wife's subjugation. It's a doctrine of alignment and respect. And Sarai rightly identified here that this decision was Abram's to make and that he should have protected Sarai even from the impulses of her own feelings of inadequacy or guilt for not being able to have a child. He should have done that and he did not. Instead, he yielded his headship to his wife, maybe for uh, perfectly righteous reasons or, or misguidedly righteous reasons, uh, maybe for carnal reasons, but one way or another, he submitted himself to her, his will to her will, his di direction, what he knew was right to her will, perhaps even against his own better judgment. And this weak leadership that Abram expresses in this moment, his unwillingness to lead his wife and rather instead to acquiesce to her distress had dramatic consequences upon his wife, upon his family, and as we'll discuss next week, as we see over in Israel today, his decision is still having dramatic consequences. Because as we trace the line of Ishmael, we trace that line to the conflict that's still happening over in the Middle East today. We'll talk about that next week. So it comes back to headship. And the remainder of our time today, I'm going to discuss headship. What it means, what it doesn't mean. What it looks like, what it doesn't look like. And to be honest, I'm going to generally avoid the topic of submission today. 
I'm talking to the husbands today, not so much the wives. However, we do recognize that because these are two sides of the same marriage coin, that headship is the man's role as submission is the woman's role, uh, that a misunderstanding, a, a, a dramatic misunderstanding of submission might muddy some of the waters of what I'm saying today. But at the end of the day, husband, loving and leading your wife is not conditioned upon her submission any more than wife. Your submission is conditioned upon your husband's love and headship. When a, when a husband-wife relationship is working properly, when it's operating as it ought to operate, submission is easy for the wife and headship and love is easy for the husband because each one is receiving what they need from their spouse and thus they're able to very easily give what their spouse needs. But of course, when we uh, stand before the, the, the Lord and we give those marriage vows, there's often some sort of incarnation of for better or worse, richer, poorer, sickness and health. Right? We recognize that marriage, biblically speaking, is not a 50-50 relationship. Marriage is a 100-100 relationship. I have vowed to my wife to give her all of me, 100% of me, to do right by her, regardless of how she acts toward me. And my wife has vowed to do the same toward me. And when we're both living out our vows, things are good. When we're not living out our vows, things are hard. If one person's not living out their vows, it's very hard. Well, it's hard on both of them. Significantly harder for the person that's still living out their vows, but it's still right. And it's still blessed. And it's still rewarded in heaven. So I'm going to somewhat avoid the topic of submission today. Husbands, the focus is going to be on you. Help understand this idea of submission. Now, submission, as I've used it, is a little bit different from what the, the society would call submission. There is much to say about what submission looks like. More than I've, I've mentioned, I've just given kind of a foundation. Submission has become a dirty word in our culture, partially because of feminism. The scourge of feminism destroys everything it touches, including submission. Partially because the church has, in its past, used the idea of submission to push deeply on biblical views of masculinity and of marriage. Views which have incorrectly justified husbands abusing their wives, whether emotionally, spiritually, or physically, in the name of submission and headship. There is none of that in the Bible, and that has no place in your heart, your mind, or your home. Demeaning your wife, no place. Stripping from women their God-given worth, dignity, value, and agency, no place. And headship gives men no such license. As anyone who has ever exercised biblical authority knows full well, biblical authority calls men to a higher path of living, not a lower. But today we do focus on the husbands, not on the wives. So that regardless of whether or not husband your wife is in submission, Husband, it is your job both to love your wife and to maintain headship in the home. And again, love is, is, is not the topic today. Headship is the topic. But let's discuss headship together. I have four points of what headship is and isn't today that will be the remainder of our time together. Point number one, biblical headship is love, not control. Biblical headship is love, not control. The essence of headship is that you, as a husband, are committed to the marriage relationship as God has designed it. That means that the man is designated as the leader of the marriage, the one through whom God is going to lead, God is going to work, and who 
bears that, that, that responsibility of ensuring his wife's wellness, her protection, and her provision. Not just in the physical, but also in the emotional and the spiritual. And we'll talk more about this in a subsequent point. But the modern idea of ensuring a person's emotional, spiritual, and physical wellness is simply to give them what they want. Right? The modern idea of, of, of ensuring a, that a person is emotionally, physically, or spiritually well is, if they're unhappy, give them what they want. Give them their safe space. Tell them what they want to hear, because if they don't hear what they want to hear, then it's your fault that they feel bad. It's your fault that they're in a bad place. They're in a dark place because they're not getting what they want, and you need to give them what they want. Let me ask you something, parents. Is that how it works with your children? That when your children get into a dark place, the solution is to give them everything they want? Does that, make your, does that even actually make your children happy? Do you know what makes my children happy when they're in that place? A father who gets them out of that place, who says, you are not going to be in this place. You are not going to act this way. Boy, my, my children respond well to that. Because my children don't know any better, but I do. If a person is thinking incorrectly, modern sensibilities say it would be cruel to tell them so. Loving them means affirming them. Even their lies, their confusions, their delusions. That's modern sensibility. And we who are in Christ, we who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, know that this is the furthest thing possible from the truth. Love is a conscious choice to do what is best for the object of my love, for the one that I love, regardless of self-interest, regardless of circumstances. It is not best to allow the person who I claim to love to persist in delusional thought, in lies, or in error. To indulge their lies of their heart and mind is to do what is worst for them, not best for them. This is not love. As a matter of fact, do you know what this is? This is selfishness. Why do I indulge people when they're in that state? Because I don't want to have to deal with them or because I don't want to go through the emotional labor of the conflict. That's why I indulge people when they're in a wrong emotional state. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me. I don't want, to be, I don't want the awkward conversation. I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to have to go through the effort. It's selfishness that keeps me from confronting that person. It's selfishness that keeps me from telling them the truth. If I can just distract my kid and plop him down in front of a movie rather than actually have to deal with his behavioral issue, that's me that's trying to avoid something. It's not about them. That's about my laziness. That's about my selfishness. Husband, your call is to love your wife. A call rooted in the exhortation of Ephesians chapter 5, where we read this in verses 25 to 29. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of, the wa of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Love your wife as your own body. 
Now, we read this ideal of the husband. And again, love is not my, my, my direct objective today, though it is of this point. Uh, the, the ideas of, of the way Christ loves his church, we understand that the, the, the advantage that we have when we look at the Christ church relationship is that if there's a problem, we always know the problem is with the church because there's not a problem with Christ. We can't say that in the husband-wife relationship, can we? We can't say that the problem is always going to be with one side or the other because we both are deeply flawed people. But we can glean this concept. Christ loved his church even unto the very sacrifice of his life. Love your wife as your own body. The text goes on to say that a man does not withhold from his body. He doesn't abuse his body. He doesn't neglect his body. He nourishes it. He cherishes it. He provides for its healing when it is wounded. Some wives in here that say, you don't know my husband, pastor. I can't get him to slow down. He's hurt. He just puts tape on it and keeps moving. I get it. But you understand the idea. And in a marriage relationship, husband, wife, you are one flesh. Husband, you are the head of that marriage. Your wife is the body to that head. You ought to love them accordingly. If my brain is compelling my body to do things that hurts my body, that's not a good thing. If somebody is feeling compelled to self-harm, we say there's something that needs to go differently in the way that they are thinking. A lot of times we can uh, chalk it up to some sort of spiritual idea, but it's passing through the mind because that is what compel is compelling the body to do things. Husband, if the body is being harmed by what you're doing, you're not loving the body. No headship works apart from love. If a man's concept of headship is that he is going to exert cold control over his wife as a minion of his little kingdom, he might attain unto that control, but he will in no way be exercising biblical headship. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not biblical. The objective of biblical headship, husband, is not to get your way. The objective of biblical headship is not to have a minion or a slave or an indentured servant at your beck and call. The objective of biblical headship is to lovingly lead your wife into that which is best for her and for you both. Under the weight of the conviction that God has given you the responsibility that your wife, to the extent that she is in submission particularly, has embraced this design, and so she depends on you for her covering. See, here's the thing about a submissive wife husband. If your wife is aligned with you, then she is dependent upon you. If she's aligned with you, then your choices affect her. You want to make it easy for her to align? Make sure that your choices are good for her. Now, that doesn't mean every time you make a choice, she thinks it's good for her. That's where headship comes in. Sometimes you just got to make the choice that you know is best or you believe is best, and then you've got to own the, the results. But headship considers it because headship is love. Husband, that means biblical headship. We'll get back to this again a little bit later. 
is a call to a sacrificial way of living. Now, as is the case with any degree of responsibility, responsibility comes with privileges. You being the head of your home means that, you are, that things are going to be done in your home according to your vision. This is true. You being the head of your home means that you do have the authority to dictate the terms by which that home operates. This is true. And these are privileges. But responsibility doesn't just come with privileges, does it? Responsibility comes with accountability. Again, if you're a parent, you've seen this play out. Your young kid comes up to you and says, I just can't wait until I'm adult when I get to fill in the blank, right? Stay up late. Eat whatever I want. Every single one of those comes with a consequence, though, doesn't it? Every single those, uh, one of those comes with a consequence. On top of the many other consequences of adulthood, such as bills to pay. Such as more people to care for. More responsibility. These things come with it, too of which we'll say more in a minute. But biblical love, Christian, defined by Jesus Christ on the cross, love is, Christ is love. Biblical love is defined by the very person of Christ. So if we look at Christ, we know what love is. If we know what love is, then love is sacrificial. Yes, it comes with tremendous upsides when a relationship is as it ought to be under love and right headship. But if the responsibility of loving headship rests on you, husband, that means you will also bear its burdens. You will bear the weight of that responsibility. When things are not going well, it, will, it is you who will bear the burden of riding that ship. And that leads us to our second point. Headship, should be biblical headship there. Biblical headship is leadership, not dominance. Biblical headship is leadership. And leadership is responsibility. And leadership is accountability. And leadership is direction. And leadership is decision-making. There's a tremendous passage in the New Testament speaking about what a leader looks like. It's actually speaking toward pastors, elders in the church in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter is commanding the elders of the church how it is they should conduct their ministries. And he says this in 1 Peter 5 verses 2 and 3. Feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. God calls the shepherd of the church to feed and to oversee the flock of God. Those are two different roles. Feed the flock, oversee the flock. Protection, direction, provision. And he says here, not as lords over God's heritage, but as ensamples to the flock. The word ensample there is a word from which we uh, get that the, it's the same word from which we, we see the idea of a type or a figure. Tupos is the Greek word. Leadership is not, a, is, is not about me demanding things. It's about me reflecting something. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. It's leadership. Leadership is about setting a vision for what could be or what ought to be and then creating the conditions necessary for that vision to come to pass. This is a concept that we call servant leadership. And we derive servant leadership from the Bible. 
Biblical leadership is a position of love. It's a position of selfishness, selflessness, excuse me. Biblical leadership is not about dominating those who are under you. Biblical leadership is about leading people who are under you to something. It's about creating a type. It's about creating an image. It's about creating a vision and living that out and saying, follow me into this because this is best. So let's talk about Abram and Sarai here. In the days following the conception of Ishmael, Sarai is not a happy woman. Hagar despises her because Hagar now sees herself as greater than her mistress. And Sarai doesn't just feel that disdain. I feel confident. She probably also feels this disdain in herself. Her handmaid was pregnant with her husband's child. She has been unable for decades to give her husband this thing, and now her handmaid has given her husband this thing. Been able to give her husband what she could not. If she felt small, if she felt inadequate, if she felt like a failure before Hagar conceived, imagine how she felt after Hagar conceived. And, as a, and, and a leader, a biblical leader, would never put one who he leads into that sort of a situation knowingly. Abram should have known the consequences in Sarai's heart if Hagar were to have that child. If he was sitting in the tent with, with Sarai for years, knowing her desire to have a child, wishing that she could give Abram what he, what, what, what he wanted, wishing that she could have what she wanted, he should have known how she would feel when he had a, a child with another woman. He should have known it was not going to end well. Now, does that mean Abram was a character that we should just toss out the window, not learn anything from, that he's a, a, a man of, of no principle or of no faith? Absolutely not. I mean, goodness, Hebrews 11, right? Just read it. He's there, hall of faith. He's a man that we ought to see and appreciate and emulate, but he, he wasn't perfect. This is one of the areas where he made a big mistake. He failed in his role as a biblical leader, he failed in his role of biblical headship. And husbands, let me just say this. If you want to lose the respect of your wife, this is the way to do it. Give in to her emotional pleas when she comes to you with some plea or she acts out because she's completely yielded to that emotional state or her frustration, whatever it might be, instead of doing your job, directing her into clarity, leading her into truth, give in. And she will then suffer the consequences of her bad choices. You both will suffer the consequences of those choices that you saw coming from a mile away. And after the fact, you can say all you want that it was on her head, that it was her choice, that she needs to live out the consequences. But you know who she's going to not respect? It'll be you. You'll be the one who loses the respect. Because you will both know that the only reason why you gave in to her was because you wanted to save yourself the trouble or the burden or the investment or the time or the toll of stepping in and helping her through that situation. Because you were apathetic. And this leads us to our third point. Biblical headship is accountability, not apathy. We talked last week about the reality that the United States, as a part of the broader and Western world, has been a female-dominated society for the better part of 100 years now. Certainly the last 50 years. 
This has happened because men have yielded their, their leadership. They have yielded leadership because when a man yields leadership, the weight of the responsibility and the accountability of leadership lifts off his shoulders. You know what's kind of nice that a lot of times men don't get to feel? No weight of accountability. You know what kind of feels good? When I don't have to feel that weight every day when I wake up and I think about my wife and my kids. You know what kind of feels good? When I can blame someone else and not have to worry about these problems myself. If I can yield my biblical headship in the name of female empowerment, if I can yield my biblical headship in the name of personal female agency, if the women of this culture are begging me to yield the thing that weighs me down every day, I might just do that. Great. Thank you. Here it used to be that, like, the wife would look and say, aren't you going to do something? Well, not, not, now I can just not do anything. Okay. And you're telling me that. In, in your name, I'm not doing anything. I can go to work and come home and sit on the couch and eat my potato chips. That's what sitcoms have taught me for 30 years I can do. That's what's expected. And my wife can have her fits and be an emotional wreck and she can get on her Xanax and I can just sit back and say, I'm doing my part. I'm bringing home the bacon. I'm keeping the lawn mowed. I'm keeping the lights on. But that's not biblical headship. No husband, you aren't doing your part. You don't mind, because as you yield that accountability, you don't have to feel the burden of leadership. And you won't feel that burden because society is insisting that if you take that burden on yourself, that you're a misogynist. That if you take that burden on yourself, that you're a part of the patriarchy. That if you take that burden on yourself, that you are doing something wrong. And so a man can yield the burden and be praised for it. Here's the problem, though. Society crumbles. <laughs> Families crumble. Churches crumble. I don't have to feel the weight. The women are going to clap for me while I don't feel the weight. And then it's all going to crumble. Every time. Christian, we live in a nation of cowardly men. Men who in the name of equality won't lead. And why would they? Right? As I've just said, when they lead, they're called all sorts of names. We're misogynists. We're patriarchal. We're backward. And while they lead, they bear the weight of the leader, that leadership asks of them. And then, of course, if they make a mistake while they're actually leading and they bear the weight of that, well, then the, the blame falls on them, as it should. And the whole of our society for several generations has told men not to lead, has punished men for leading, has said leadership is a bad thing, and so men have... Yielded leadership. We've been able to live without that weight upon our shoulders. Feels pretty good until it doesn't. Just as Abram did on the day where he consented to this plan that his wife had asked of him. But of course, the problem, as I've said, Christian, is that no man can cheat the system. Whether or not you lead, the consequences will eventually fall on you. If not in this life, certainly in life to come. We men have chosen culturally not to lead. And the consequences that will most likely fall on us one day for it is that we are going to be sending our sons to die on a battlefield. 
because we refuse to lead. The consequences will come. They have to come because it's God's design. And if we can skate through this whole life yielding our responsibility unto headship and still somehow getting through fine because we were able to skate on the backs of men of character of other generations, kind of like we've been able to do for the last you know, 50 years or so, well, then certainly on the day that we stand before the throne, we're going to hear about it. Our nation is facing and will continue to face the dramatic consequences of multi-generations of men who have gladly yielded the burdens and accountability of leadership. But make no mistake, husband, your family, your wife, and your children will also face the consequences if you do not take the lead in your home. I'm defining what that is. We're not talking about control. We're not talking about dominance. We're not talking about slavery. We're not talking about subjection. I've made that clear. Leadership. Headship. And on that day, you can deflect and you can say, but this is what they asked for. I was only giving them what they wanted. They were only making their own decisions. It's the society we live in. It's the family we have. But in reality, none of that matters because when reality comes knocking, the blame game makes no difference anymore. When reality comes knocking, at the end of the day, the buck still stops with you because that's what God has designed. And whether you see it or I see it, or our wives see it, or our society sees it, it doesn't matter because God sees it. And it is we who chose in our day either to lead or not to lead. And now our families bear the consequences. And they will. Final point. Biblical headship is love, not control. Biblical headship is leadership, not dominance. Biblical headship is accountability, not apathy. Finally, biblical headship is selflessness, not selfishness. All of this culminates with the reality, men, that the life of a godly man is a life where you have set yourself aside. Selflessness. We talk about that, right, as it relates to great men of history depending on who our, our culture define, defines, but who we would consider a great men of history. Let's put it that way. What do those men pretty regularly have in common? It's a life of selflessness. A godly man is a selfless man. It's a man who gives himself for his wife, who gives himself for his children, who gives himself for his church, who gives himself for his society. No institution functions properly apart from selfless men within it. Servant leaders, biblical men, exercising biblical headship, and today everything is inverted in our society. Society and even the church says that a good man is a compliant man, a man who gives in, a man who has no opinion, a man who stands aside and allows others, the women in their lives, the, the other people in their lives, to dictate the spirit and direction of their homes, of their church, of their society. And it will not end well. Not because women cannot lead, not because women are inferior, not because women are incapable. None of those things are true, obviously. But because when we yield these things, what we are actually yielding is God's design. And there is no scenario where yielding God's design 
comes without consequences. On the day that Hagar conceived Ishmael, Sarai looked at her husband and said, My wrong be upon thee. And Sarai was absolutely correct here. Abram yielded his headship to his wife for any number of possible reasons, and in doing so, he created the negative consequences that last even to this day. Husband, man of the church, citizen, God forbid that we would do the same. We need godly men exercising biblical headship. And it begins with our wives. Then it continues as leaders of our homes, as leaders in our church, and then as God allows, as leaders in our society. Let us take up that mantle that God has designed us to carry. Pastor, that sounds tiring. It will be. Pastor, it sounds like I'm not going to be able to do exactly what I had planned to do, that I might have to change plans, set aside dreams, possibly. But that's what God has asked of you. It's who God designed you to be. It's how God made you. I've been really hard on, my, on men this morning. But here's the thing that I know. Your shoulders can carry it. I know it because God designed it to be so. If you're a man in this room today, your shoulders can carry the burden that the word of God places on you. You've not been asked to carry that burden by society. So maybe our shoulders are a little flabby. Maybe they have uh, gotten a little bit tired, a little quicker than they ought to because we haven't had to use them as much. They'll shape up if we'll carry the burdens that we're called to carry. Let us take on the mantle. Let us assume biblical headship in love, not in control. As leaders, follow me as I follow Christ, not dictators, not do as I say, not as I do. Not the man who sits in his mansion while all of his people starve. Under accountability, denying the apathy that we would be tempted to assume whereby we can pass the buck to someone else when we ought to carry it ourselves. And in absolute selflessness, because if we're not selfless, there will be no way that we can exercise proper biblical headship. There's no way that we can love properly. Let us lead our society, our church, our homes, our wives into the kind of success that God has desired for us. And wives, may you not despise your husband for doing so. Don't allow the culture of our current society to compel you to demean your husband when he tries to do what God has designed him to do. If you will get behind him and encourage him, you will be surprised how far that will help him go. Honor them for their selfless determination under this kind of biblical headship. And even just for that praise and support, you'd be surprised at what a man will do. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.